Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, we're reading from Romans uh, chapter 6, 1 to 14. Which, so what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. We are diving into Romans chapter 6. This is a bit of a, um, a series we're doing at the start of the year to talk about the priorities we have for this year. So if you haven't been with us, you've missed the first two, but they will be appearing on the website if they haven't already. But I challenged you a couple of weeks ago, as you're making New Year's resolution, to make your number one resolution that this would be a year that you look back on as a year that you make significant progress, significant growth in your life in God. Not only because that is the best kind of life, it's the life that the Bible talks about as flourishing, as putting down deep roots, as bearing fruit in season, as standing firm when hardships come. It's not only that life with God works, but it's actually life with God. And this is the opportunity we have. Could you imagine, uh, pick, pick the person who is your kind of, uh, use this in a non-pejorative sense, your idol. Okay, maybe you're a particular sports fan, you like something. Think about the person who is at the top of their game. Maybe you like art or music. That person gets on the phone and says, hey, I want to spend time with you and get to know you and uh, work alongside you this year. What would you say? Actually, no, I'm not really interested in that. You know, I know I love uh, whatever it is that you do love, but really? Well, God has actually said that he is there for us. That's what the Christian message is, that he comes alongside us and in his grace, he takes us closer to himself. And that's what I would encourage you this year. Augustine, a uh, third century African, said these, he probably didn't look anything like this, 
because uh, he was actually from Africa, so he was probably somewhat darker in complexion. Uh, but he said quite beautifully, I think, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. He's actually made us that we might know him. And so we are unpacking how do we grow in our relationship with God. This week, we're moving on. Last week, we looked at you are accepted, and particularly the doctrine of justification. And this week, we've got another title, you are delivered. And these are foundations upon which I believe our growth in Christ are, uh, is based. And that is the technical term for that. You can ignore that if you want. Uh, but it's called sanctification. It's growing in Christ-likeness. And last week, I gave you three points. This week, I've got five. Don't worry, same length sermon, just more points. Okay, we're going to talk briefly about the bedrock of faith. We're going to talk, just recap justification, because all of these foundations, there's four of them, they stand together. You can't have one without the others. They all interlock. So we need to remind ourselves what we learned. Then we're going to look at sanctification you are delivered. We're going to look at some of its implications and then talk briefly about crafting a well-founded life. Now, what is the bedrock of faith? It's probably not going to surprise you if you are a Christian that I'm going to tell you that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the bedrock. It is the foundation upon which our faith must be built. If, there is, if our faith is built on anything else, uh, it will not stand. Remember last week, I should have put it in, that lovely picture of the, uh, the high-rise where the foundation was undermined and the whole thing just fell over? That will happen to our faith if the foundation is not drilled deep into the bedrock of the gospel. Now, but what is the gospel? Gospel is a bit of a Christian jargon word. Well, it means good news. Good news about What? Well, probably the clearest place where you find an answer to that question is in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul just narrows it right down. He's writing to the church and he says this to them. He says, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. Go, oh, good. Okay, we're in the right spot. The gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So he's basically saying, this is the essentials. You've got to hold this. This has to be the bedrock of your faith. For what I received, Paul writes, I pass to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, and then to the Twelve. What is the gospel? The gospel is the historical events of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the bedrock upon which our faith is built. It is the fact that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again that is underneath everything that we believe. Paul actually tells us a little bit further down in chapter 15 that if Christ wasn't raised, if we had the life and the death but no resurrection, we're pathetic. 
We're wasting our time. But then he reminds us that Christ has indeed been raised. And so our faith is alive and real. But the gospel is the historical events. That is the bedrock. The question, though, we've got to actually ask, that's 2,000 years ago. It's on the other side of the world. How does that come to us? Well, the Bible uses the idea that Stephen was uh, playing with in the kids' talk. The Bible talks about us being united with Christ. Now, let me unpack this. Um, Most of us have been on a plane, yes? Now, what is the correct relationship with a plane for it to work for you? Do you want to be an admirer of the plane? You know, like those people who sit out uh, at... um, you know, near Glenelg there and just watch them? Is, is that the right relationship to have a plane? Or maybe, maybe you want to be alongside the plane or following the plane. It doesn't really work. What is the correct relationship to have with a plane if it's going to work for you? You've got to be in the plane, don't you? You've actually got to be united to the plane. And what happens to the plane happens to you. And so Paul actually writes, and Val read for us so beautifully, he said, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ, with him. We were united to Christ. When he died, the Bible teaches us that we died as well. We were united to Christ. Those gospel events, we are united to Christ in them. And it's not just his death. Here's Ephesians 2. With his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ. So we died with Christ, we were raised with Christ, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So where are, where are we? If we are those whose faith is in Christ, we are in Christ in the heavenly realms in a very real sense. We reign with Christ now. The Bible talks about union with Christ as the thing that takes those historical events and works out their implications for us. Does that make sense? Because that's a really, really important point. It is something that combines us. And what is it that brings that union? It's faith. It is trusting that God has done it for us, that Christ did it in our place. It is our faith that is a gift from God that actually unites us to Christ. And so Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. How? Because what happened to Christ happened to Paul. And if your faith is in Christ, it happened to you. Got it? There's going to be a quiz a little bit later. That's a really important point. Okay, let's move on. Just quickly recap. So we've got our first foundation that we talked about last week as justification. Okay, so as we are uh, united to Christ by faith, the victory of the gospel comes to us. We are accepted. God accepts us because of the perfect, finished work 
of Christ. And it works. Uh, what happens when we put our faith in Christ is there is a two-way exchange. Christ takes our sin. We get his righteousness. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if it happens this much anymore, the traditional marriage vows. If you weren't married in an Anglican service and, and you said the traditional vows, you probably would have said something along the lines of, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. There's a few nods out there. There's one or two. Okay, the rest of you need to go back and re-say your vows or something, you know. But you get the idea. So when you get married, uh, all your spouse's assets and liabilities become yours. Yes? Okay, it doesn't happen so much. We're a bit twitchy about this and our society doesn't kind of work. But that's what it used to be. All that I have and all that I am. And what did we bring to the relationship? We brought our sin. And so Jesus, as our marriage partner, the one to whom we are united by faith, he gets our sin. What does he bring? He brings his righteousness, his perfect performance, his perfect record, his status as a chosen, beloved child of the Father. And that comes to us. And so when we talk about justification, we talk about being accepted before God. We are accepted not just as sinners on parole, but we are accepted as Christ himself is accepted. Does this make sense? It is an amazing thing. It is an amazing foundation that we can actually say we are accepted. Here's point two. I'm racing. This is amazing. Point three. This is going to be a bit slower. Okay. Number two is our second foundation. And this is what I call you are delivered. Or if you want to be theologically techie, we're going to talk about sanctification. Why do you care? Why do you care? Well, sanctification is all about change. Now, who here made a New Year's resolution? I'm not going to ask you what it was, but just, did, you, did anyone make a New Year's? There's a few. Most of you are too cynical and a bit worn out and you don't do that anymore because you know there's no use to it. Okay, I'm speaking to you as well. My New Year's resolution maybe was not to make any New Year's resolutions or something like that, you know. It's the cynic in us because we're, we're, we're maybe a little cynical about our capacity to change. But most of us can look at our life, even if you're not a Christian, and say, there are things I'd like to be different. Most of us have felt the challenge of seeing something that we just can't budge. Change. Change is a natural part of life. It's a good thing, and we want it. Not just the changes that come with age. Uh, I'll leave you to work out what they are. I don't know what they are yet, but anyway... I understand things start to sag generally, isn't that right? Yeah? It's, yeah, anyway. I just won't go there. <laughs> the young guys over there, they don't know what we're talking about. But uh, yeah, okay. But in Christ, Christians have an incredible power to change. We have an incredible capacity to change. 
And the thing about the Christian life, it is a life of change. When you became a Christian, that's not the end. That's the beginning. To go back to our our wedding picture, when you say your vows to one another, when you are united together, that's the start of a life together, not the end of a life together. It's the start of a relationship, not the end of a relationship. When we come to Christ, when we are united to Christ by faith, it is the beginning of a life that sees us transformed. And one of the, uh, this is a great little quote. This is Dallas Willard. He says, Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. We're not turning into clones of Jesus, but we're turning into Jesus-shaped Camerons or Jesus-shaped Jesses. I think it's a great image. It doesn't take away our individuality. It doesn't take away who we are and who he made us to be, but we see ourselves perfected in Christ. That is the idea of sanctification. We come and we stand on the gospel, united by faith in Christ. We stand as accepted and delivered. What are we delivered from? Well, the Bible tells us, and we read this morning in Romans 6, we are delivered from sin. Now, what is sin? It's not a very popular term, unless it's used with uh, ice creams and chocolate and that kind of thing, you know, where it's actually kind of that thing that you kind of really want to do and you know you shouldn't, but you're going to do it anyway. Um, Sin has got a, a little bit of a bad rap in our society. We don't like people talking to us about sin. And we tend to think of it in terms of breaking rules, in terms of isolated actions, words that we spoke, thoughts that we had. But the Bible has a much bigger view of sin. The Bible tells us that we don't sin in as much as we commit individual sins, so much as we actually live under sin's dominion. So don't think of actions. Think of rules. Not rules as in right and wrong, but as who is king. Who is king? And the Bible teaches us that sin is like a dominion, that sin reigns like a king, like a tyrant over us. It reigns over the entire human race. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see this idea, it's there in Romans uh, 6 verse 1. This is um, my attempt at a translation because it brings out, I think, a little bit of what the NIV kind of covers. Shall we go on sinning is what the NIV, what the translation you've got in front of you most likely says. That implies an action. What it literally says is, shall we remain in sin? Shall we remain under the dominion of sin? Under the control of sin? So that grace might increase. His his argument is, shall we be bad so that God can forgive us more? And he says, no, that's a rubbish argument. You don't want to go there. But you get the idea that the Bible teaches us that before we came to Christ, we lived under the dominion of sin. And this means that even our best actions, 
even our most righteous and holy actions were done for the wrong reason, for the wrong purpose. Imagine, and I've used this illustration before, that you are a wonderful, faithful, loving, kind, generous partner to your lover, but not your spouse. You're directing everything that belongs to your spouse to another. Let me give you a more concrete illustration. I walked into um, Westfield at Marion and they had the people at the doors collecting for the bushfires. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I'm not saying there's, nothing, there's anything wrong with donating to the bushfires. Please do. It's a really good thing to do. But what goes on in your heart when you donate? What goes on in your heart when you donate? Do you donate solely for the good of the people to whom you're giving to? Do you donate that God might be glorified through your generosity? Do you walk away and go, actually, I feel pretty good about myself because I just gave some money. I know what I do. I, had, I bought something during the week and they said, oh, would you like to round that up and we'll match what you, may, what you do. Uh, we'll give that to the bushfires. And I walked out feeling a little bit more righteous. You see how the generosity has actually been subverted to pump up my own self-image, my own self-worth. Sin smuggles in at that motivational level. So even a good action can be done for the wrong reason. But the Bible tells us that when we come to Christ, when we are united to Christ by faith, when we stand justified, accepted on the basis of Christ's finished work, the Bible tells us that not only is sin's penalty paid, sin's power over us, its dominion, its reign is broken. Sin has been taken off the throne. In Colossians, Paul talks about being delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun. We've been saved from sin. We've been set free from sin and delivered into life in Christ. And how does that happen? We've kind of talked about it a bit, but here it is there in verse 2, or verse 3 and 4. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptised into his death. Now, baptism is an external action. Uh, involves water and putting people in, and you can have arguments about when you do it and how much water is involved, but that's not the point. What it is saying is it's an expression of faith. It's an outward expression of an inward commitment. And as that inward commitment, that faith brings us to be united to Christ. This is demonstrated here in the language of baptism. Paul tells us we are baptised into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. We died with Christ. And this happens. This happens in a real sense. Verses 6 and 7, our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin, there's that idea of dominion, might be done away with so that we might not be people who are ruled over by sin. 
We should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We have been set free. We have been delivered because of the victory of Christ. Now, I want to ask you, is that your experience? Do we feel the chains? Maybe, maybe not. Let me give you a few reasons. One is I think that we have, we've so often reduced sin to a level of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, rules, and mostly when you've been a Christian for a little while, you kind of clean up your act generally. And most of us, even before we were Christians, we were pretty decent people. You know, so we probably weren't breaking too many of the rules anyway. And so when we have a little view of sin, we don't actually see just how enslaving it is. But we also have, a, I think, a little view of God. We don't actually realise just how holy he is. We don't actually realise how the little things that we explain away offend his holiness, grieve his heart. So we don't feel that this is a big thing, that this is something that holds us in bondage. Because it's just, it's just a little thing. You know, my, my trouble telling the truth, ah, they're white lies and it, it wouldn't be good for them to hear what I really think anyway. And so we come up with all sorts of justifications why that's okay. But we don't see that it is something that enslaves us and something that offends God. We recalibrate our conscience so we do not feel the chains. But when you actually truly see just who God is and just how sinful our hearts are, we will then see how wonderful his grace is. But we also will feel those chains. But the wonderful thing is, is that Christ broke those chains. That Christ paid that penalty and destroyed the power of sin over us. But it's not something that happens to us without our effort. It's not something that happens to us. It, yes, it happens for us. But it's one of these things that we need to take on into our life. It's kind of like someone leaves you a, a chunk of money and they put it in the bank for you. And they tell you, here's the card, there's the bank account. But you never go and draw on it. It's there, it's yours, it's real. But you never access it. It's the same with our justification if we never actually work it into our lives, into our identity, that I am accepted, not because I am righteous, but because Christ is. It's the same with our sanctification. Paul tells us this. He says in verse 11 of chapter 6, count yourself dead to sin. That's a deliberate intellectual effort. I am to regard myself, I am to reckon myself dead to sin. It's true, you are, but I have to live that. I have to think that. That has to work itself out in my life. How else? He says in verses 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, do not let sin reign. Why? Because Christ deposed the tyrant. Why would you let him back on the throne? 
Do not let sin reign so you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God. Paul here is talking about a choice now that Christians have. We can choose which way we are going to go, which ends we are going to serve. You can serve God for righteousness. We can serve sin for wickedness. That is there. And brothers and sisters, if we are going to grow in our relationship with God, there is that choice that we make each and every day. Will we live free? Will we live in the victory that Christ won for us? Will we live delivered from sin? Or will we let sin reign? You may be someone here this morning who's wrestling with something. And it may be something that no one else knows about, but you know. And maybe God is bringing that to your attention. Maybe you feel enslaved, trapped. You've tried before to get out of this thing. But you can't. But what this is saying is that Christ has broken those shackles. That the gospel is the key to your freedom. Not just when you came to Christ, but each and every day. And if you work out the implications of the gospel, if you prayerfully process this, humbly go to God in repentance, there is freedom that is there. Because Christ died that you might be free. So brother, sister, I urge you to talk to someone. It's kind of like there's a story about an eagle that was a chained eagle and it would sit there on its tree. And one day its captor released it, took the chain off. And what did the eagle do? Just spent its time walking around and around and around the tree. In Christ, the chains have been taken off. In Christ, we are set free. But so often, we sit down and we just go round and round and round. We let sin reign rather than claiming the freedom and the victory that is ours in Christ. Let's move on. There's lots I could say. Romans 6 is so dense. Let's work out some of the implications. Let me say briefly, these two foundations and the next two, they have to go together. You have to have justification and sanctification. You are accepted, you are delivered together. You must have them because sanctification is driven by justification. Because I can confront the sin in my life because I know that God has accepted me. I know that nothing that comes out of my heart means that he will turn me away. So I can actually confront the sin that remains. I can be honest with myself, with God, with others, and I can turn away from it. You must have it together. If you try to have justification, acceptance before God, without the ongoing desire to grow in Christ, you have what uh, Christians have called cheap grace 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer's probably uh, the best proponent of that. Hopefully this will appear on the screen. Maybe not. Let me read it for you. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. It says, your sin doesn't matter, don't worry about it, just get on with life. That's not grace. That's a band-aid that covers the problem. True grace transforms. How do you know? How do you know if you're taking grace cheaply? What's your attitude to sin? Do you find sin in your heart, in your life now? The Bible teaches us as Christians, even though sin's power has been broken, sin will remain until Christ comes back and we are finally transformed into his image. 1 John 2, if we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We make God out to be a liar. Do we find sin in our heart? You can't have justification without sanctification. You can't have sanctification without justification. Because what you then do is you try and make yourself acceptable to God on basis of your own works. And you turn yourself into a Pharisee. What else? Assurance. Let's talk briefly about assurance. If we are accepted and delivered, where does, does assurance rest? Can I say it must rest on justification, on that first foundation. It must rest on the finished work of Christ. Otherwise, we end up chronically insecure because otherwise it will rest upon our performance. It will rest upon are we doing the right things? Are we doing enough of the right things? And the answer is always no. It must rest on justification. But a man, a much wiser man than me, we seem to have lost all our screens. I'm sorry about that. They just disappeared. Okay. Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Unless you are seeing some progress, unless you are feeling some grief at sin unless you have some desire to become more like Christ there must be a point where you question have you actually come to him at all but as you come to him no matter how small that mustard seed of faith you are just as accepted at that moment of conversion as you ever will be the weakest sinner and the greatest saint stand on the perfect work of Christ and the result is, at the end of it all, that we have a life of conflict. J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop in Liverpool in the 1800s in the UK, uh, he said this, A true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. We stand on our justification. We know we are accepted. And there is this ongoing battle against sin. How do we do it? That brings us to our last point. Crafting a well-founded life. It's, it's a matter of repentance and faith. <laughs> How did you come to Christ? 
you turned away from the world, you turned away from your sin, you turned away from evil, and you turned to Christ. That's repentance and faith. How do you go on in Christ? Repentance and faith. I want to spend just a little bit of time as I wrap up talking about repentance. Repentance is not just saying sorry. Repentance, the old uh, Puritans used to talk about it as mortification, uh, putting to death sin. And they came up with a number of steps that I think are actually helpful. Not that you have to follow through one to six, but it's just helpful to see the progress. The first thing you do is you need to see sin for sin. Unless you see it as a problem, you're never going to look for a solution. Unless you see it as something that needs to be changed, needs to be turned away from, you're never going to turn away from it. You need to see sin. You need to see it in light of God's holiness, which needs to mean that you need to have sorrow for sin. You need to actually recognise the offence that that sin is. The fact that that sin, among others, took Christ to the cross. So you need to see sin, have sorrow for sin. And then you need to confess it. You need to go to God, resting in his grace, trusting in the finished work of Christ. But you need to go to him and confess it. And they say, you need to confess particular sins particularly. Let me say that again. You need to confess particular sins particularly. So if your problem, let's say, is with telling the truth, you actually need to talk to God about telling the truth and you're lying. Not confess God, God, I'm a sinner. You need to go with the particulars before God and recognise how your falsehood is an offence to his truth. How your darkness is an offence against his light. We need to go to the reasons why. We need to look underneath the sin. Why do you have such problem telling the truth? Maybe it's because you're afraid. You're afraid that they will reject you. But brother, sister, recognise the acceptance that is yours in Christ and how justification fuels sanctification. Just one example. You need to see it. You need to feel sorry for it. You need to confess it. You need to feel the shame. So often we're so quick just to walk away from sin. Oh, it's done. I said sorry. How does that work in your relationships? Try that next time you cause offence. I said sorry. Move on. It doesn't work that well, does it? Isn't there a point where we do actually need to feel ashamed? Not a shame that cripples us, but a shame that we have once again offended our Father. Sometimes I think we are too quick to go to grace. We are too quick to say, oh, Jesus died to make that, that, that new. Yes, he did. But recognise until you actually see the shame that that brings, you're not going to want to change. And then you've got to hate it and you've got to turn from it. You've got to learn to hate sin like God hates sin. 
Now, there's so much more that I could say. But building the life of faith, building a life that grows, is a life of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And they are two sides of the same coin. You turn away and you turn towards. You turn from sin, you turn to God. You offer your body as an instrument, not of wickedness, but of righteousness. You pursue not sin's agendas under sin's reign, but God's agendas under Christ's reign. That is how you grow. And brother and sister, recognize and put your trust in the promise of Philippians 1 verse 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege. What a blessing you have given us. You have given us the good news, the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have given us the one who lived, died and rose again for us. You've made it possible that through faith, the victory that he won is our victory. The death that he died is our death. That we might die to sin and live to you. And Father, I do pray. I pray for myself. I pray for everyone here. That you might lead us deeper into the gospel. Deeper into an understanding of your holiness your righteousness and everything that is ours because of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.